Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes. Enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real. And welcome, everyone, to the 10th episode of the Keep It Real series with We First, Simon Mainwaring. Look, before we begin, I just want to make sure you are all aware that our Impact Awards campaign is still going on and will end on August 31st, 2021. So what is the Impact Awards? Well, since 2010, ReLeaders has been the premier source for recognizing organizations that are making a positive social or environmental impact. With an audience of 30,000 CEOs in 140 countries, Real Leaders, through its Impact Awards, has brought recognition to impact companies across six continents, collaborating with marketing and communications managers to devise advertising strategies that achieve revenue goals, increase customer traffic, and ultimately support brand engagement. So if you are a brand officer and you want to bring your impact organization into the spotlight so you can open up speaking opportunities for your CEO, you can be featured in our publication and online and get to know the Real Leaders staff, just go online to real-leaders.com slash impact-awards-application to learn more. I'll make sure we put a link in the description for you all. So. With that being said, folks, let's jump into the 10th episode of the Keep It Real series with the real Simon Mainwaring. Enjoy. And boom, just like that, we're halfway through the year with uh, the Keep It Real series and the co-host of the Keep It Real series, Simon Mainwaring. Simon, how are you doing today? I am awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just got back from a long trip, didn't you? I did. I'm just going to leave it at that. That was it. Peace out. No, um, I did something which I never do, and we should all probably do more of, which is I took a break. I think I hadn't been away since COVID began in February last year, and I finally um, I went to Cabo for three days surfing. And I grew up in Australia, and I love the water, and I feel like a new human being. So I don't know. It's going to be all very effervescent today. I'm full of beans. Well, I think it's important that you did that. I mean, were you one of those people that were kind of like shaming others for traveling during COVID or were you kind of like dormant about it or were you kind of just like go out there and, and you know, enjoy life? Like what was your kind of mentality? Sure, I'm sure I wasn't so annoying and judgy on so many fronts. I think we all went through craziness, not knowing because we're also anxious about what was going on. I just didn't um, travel for a long time until it was safe. And now we're like many others, double vaccinated. So feel good about it. 
Um, but you know, the I don't know. I'm here in LA. The country still for me feels um, it's like a Sunday all the time. People are out and about, but it's a bit quieter. It's kind of like we're not quite back or there yet. Um, and I think um, now I think there's a mandate back here in Los Angeles that you got to put masks back on, so because of the Delta variant. So we'll see what happens. It's interesting what had just happened uh, for a, almost a year. We're essentially trapped in a cage with a TV yeah. in our computer screens, feeding us information. We're unable to go outside and, and enjoy these different landscapes that are um, not innate or close to our home, right? Like Mexico, yeah. essentially, like where you went. Um, what effect do you think that played on people mentally over this past year? Yeah. We talked about resiliency a lot. How do you think people are going to, to cope with this uh, in the long term? Well, the, it's, you bring up a really good point. I think one of the great oversights of what's going on right now, as we're all happy to, to varying degrees reopen and, and some people want to rush back to how things were, um, is that we don't realize what we all went through. I think everyone got really, really freaked out and scared for their own well-being and those they care about. Businesses were incredibly stressful. Um, everything that we took for granted was thrown into question. And there was a lot of grief. And some of us held it together. Some of us expressed that grief. Some of it have kind of compartmentalized it. And I just there's a part of me that wants us all to let it out. Like when I said I went to Mexico in the last few days, I realized what a stress head I was and how like a, a ball of anxiety and tension I'd been over the last year. And you've got to use exercise. You've got to connect with nature to let that out. So I really hope that each of us and as business owners on behalf of employees, we recognize that everyone's been through a lot personally and professionally. And that we sort of honor that and allow ourselves to decompress in some ways, whether that means taking a break, whether it means crying and falling over and having a long sleep, whether it means having a drink with friends and just sharing what everybody was feeling. But I don't think we can just hop over this emotional hole and then continue as nothing happened. I think especially for young people who is their social identity, it's so critical. I think something really profound has happened. Yeah, I think everyone's had, everyone's changed their habits. It's like people are more comfortable with staying inside now. Yeah. People have changed the way they work. It's more flexible, yeah. free flowing now. Uh, how are you adjusting personally uh, to reintegrate yourself back into society? I'm not sure that I'm ready to. I mean, it was a thing, you know, going away for the first time and being around other people. I've become a bit of a hermit. Um, and my situation is unique. My daughters and wife are in Australia right now for various reasons. and They're about to come back. And I've had an extended period of time on my own and I had to learn how to enjoy my own company again. Because, you know, between work where you're always talking to people, driving home, you're doing calls, and then at home, I didn't know how to be with myself anymore and just be okay with that and be okay with silence and, and filling time myself. And so I've really kind of observed myself over the last couple of months of being alone, like 14 hours a day beyond work calls, just silence. And I, instead of trying to fill that, I've sat in it and i've been really trying to learn how to be okay with my own company again which has been a thing it's just a personal thing um and with regards to reintegrating i hope that we don't rush back to the way we were doing things first and foremost because of the toll it took on us the toll it took on the environment this freneticism that seemed to this adrenalized version of life that we were living but also i think if we do that we will lose sight of the profound awareness 
that was one of the few silver linings of COVID, which is what matters most in our life are those relationships close to us. The, you know, the people in our lives and what we make together in terms of the impact we can have, and also the natural world and our ability to go out there and socialize and feel a sense of community. If we all rush back and do all that we were doing before and then some because we feel like we lost a year and a half, then I, I think we might have missed a chance to learn something really important. So I'm going to hold my own feet to the fire and try and travel less, even though I've got a new book coming out and that sort of thing. I think I'm going to try and make sure that with clients, we don't rush to get on a plane. And I'm going to try and strike, see if I can strike a little bit more of a healthy balance and, and know that it's okay not to run around and try and keep up with everyone. You know? And for people listening to this for the first time, it's your first time listening to the Keeper Real series. Uh, that's kind of what we talk about. How does capitalism <laughs> integrate a healthy balance into yeah. a lifestyle, into the world? Um, how does it take on things that the government and uh, uh, those responsibilities cannot take on? And I, I want to set this first conversation up with talking about what the conversation was pre-COVID. And then I'd like you yeah. to tell me what you experienced from your lens during this time that we were away. And then we can talk about how we are going to change going forward. And pre-COVID, yeah. there were a lot of and many people um, that, you know, were working in the workforce and i'm talking about the united states specifically and yeah. we're having a hard time paying rent and we're saying you know what's in it for me my yeah. ceo is making 500 to a thousand times more than i am um there's things that aren't being changed in the world what's in it for me why isn't yeah. this system working for me and how do we make it change so that was kind of the conversation that we would have before this yeah. this whole change and you talk a lot about whoa, right when the world kind of seemed to shut down, businesses stepped up and look at we look what we can do when we put yeah. our minds to it. So elaborate to our audience and explain to our audience what you perceived throughout 2020 from the business community. No, thanks for the opportunity to share some thinking there. I agree with you. <clears throat> that was the nature of the conversation prior to COVID, February, beginning of March last year. And then, you know, I think what happened over the last 14, 15 months is that a conversation that was evolving and advancing accelerated, which is what is the role of capitalism, you know, and how do we re-engineer capitalism? What is the role of business and how do we practice business as companies and as leaders as a function of that? And I think there was this three things that came together. You know, you've got climate, which is now top of people's mind again, but kind of diminished because COVID was top. Then there's obviously the COVID and all the variants. And then there's the Black Lives Matter movement and diversity and inclusion. And as a result of that, two things. One, I think the table stakes for any company of any size out there now include three things. You've got to be sustainable, you know, have a sustainability commitment if you're a small company or ESG commitments if you're a large company, environmental, social and governance commitments. You've got to be very attentive to DNI and diversity and inclusion or JEDI, justice, equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, and then the third is fair and living wage. There has been, it's the, if you look at Just Capital's research, it's the number one concern of citizens and consumers in the US, fair and living wage. And you see a lot of companies stepping up to the $20 an hour mark beyond the $15 an hour mark. So I think the conversation has accelerated. Those three issues have come to the fore. And then the other thing that I think is a really big takeaway that has changed things 
for the for the good, I think, is that people can't unsee the way the business responded in the last 12 to 15 months. Like you can't unsee people all around the world dropping their tools, re-engineering their supply chains, making PPE equipment and ventilators and meals for medical practitioners. We have seen firsthand in real time in an accelerated time frame, business spinning up a whole new expression of who it is and the role that it plays. And everyone's seen that from employees to customers to citizens. And we know that that's possible now. And so I think the expectations are higher. I think the scrutiny is higher. And I think it's actually accelerated a lot of the things that are in the works, which I think is, is a good thing. And, and now your book coming out, Lead With We, it talks about this collective mindset, which I love so dearly because it's hard to change the outside, the external world. But what you can do is you can change your mindset. And so explain yeah. to our audience what you mean by leading with we and, how, and where you think this change can start from uh, the inside of the brain of a CEO or a leader in the community? No, yeah, it's an important question because I, I want to say, here's the, here, here's the brass tanks. We're in this mess, not because of any one company, one individual or one industry. We're in this mess, whether it's climate or all these other issues, because we're all doing things that did damage. And so we've all got to work together to get out of it. No one company, no one billionaire, no one industry can fix it. So in the same way we're in this mess together, we need to get out of this mess together. And how do we do that? Well, the book explores how we work together as a we in new ways that will provide solutions that benefit everyone. So work together to benefit everyone. It's that simple. But why is that important? The vast majority of business doesn't work that way. Everyone works in a vacuum and they're trying to make sure that their shareholders get as much money as possible or they make as much profit as possible. And a lot of the time they say, damn the consequences, pollution, whatever it's going to be. In the vast majority of companies still, even though there's a lot of people talking about purpose, the vast majority haven't changed. And this is now at such an extent that we're facing an existential crisis for our species. Like the planet is literally in trouble. Look at the heat wave in the Northwest. Look at what's going on all around the world. There's so many indicators every day. And so this book provides a very important solution, I believe, in terms of what needs to happen for us to actually solve for it. Because here's the reality. We have the stakes. We are in trouble. Whether you look at it at air pollution in the ocean plastic, whether it's loss of biodiversity, whether it's the climate emergency, whether it's social inequity, all of these different things, the stakes are high. We have the stakeholders, which just means who are the people invested in providing a solution? And for a long time, we would have leadership to some degree. We'd have conscious consumers. We maybe had employees, but now we've got all of them and suppliers and the investor class. You hear all the time now, all of this money going into ESG funds and so on, which is basically how big companies are kept accountable for what they're doing. So you've got the stakes, you've got the stakeholders, but what was missing is the story, which is the narrative around the role of business. And so as a leader of a company that's been charged with doing this time and time again for brands that we all know, B2B, B2C brands, I've been sitting there for the last 10 years of doing this work going, how do we actually get it done? We've got the stakes, we've got the stakeholders, but what's the missing piece? And for me, in all the research that I did, you need a narrative, that a universally applicable narrative 
that people can apply in practical ways to reframe what they're doing. So lead with we is three things. It's a point of departure. It's a mindset, okay? We need to work together to provide solutions that benefit everyone. That's a mindset. It's also a practice. We do it collaboratively with our employees, with our customers, with our suppliers. And it's also an aspiration or end state that we're driving towards, which is we are one human family, we share the same planet, and we've got to work together. Like the natural or the living world, living systems do, they're all codependent. So it's a point of departure, it's a process, and it's an end state. And the whole point is this. It sounds simple in practice, like, duh, you know, we're all part of one human family, we all share the same planet. But if you honestly lead with we, what does that mean for a CEO? What does that mean for company culture? What does it mean for how you manage your supply chain? What does it mean for the products you make and what products you innovate and take to market? What does it mean for how you take them to market? What does it mean for your impact work? Everything changes. And so the book lays out a roadmap for how you can transform each of those really important elements of business, but then how they all work together to unlock the power of the sum of the parts. And here's the thing I'd end on. When you look at the natural world, everything plays a role. But the well-being of all the individual parts depends on the health and well-being of the entire natural ecosystem. And we see it breaking down in different ways and having huge consequences. So, you know, proving this out. We need to do the same. We need to protect the well-being of the whole so the parts can thrive, whether it's an investor, an employee, or a customer. And so Lead With We is all about how we re-engineer, we reimagine uh, re business to live and work in new ways so that we can protect and restore the social and living systems on which all our futures depend. So a long answer, but that's what it's all about. Well, let's continue to explore this. Now, what I don't want to do is continue to uh, recite what we've said in these last nine episodes. And there are sure. clear benefits to doing exactly what you're saying. The point I want to make is uh, from an investor's perspective, I had an investor come on and he's asking about what makes the difference for me is sustainability and the purpose and uh, the stakeholder value approach. Is it in the, you know, does it fall underneath the CMO or does it fall underneath the COO? Mm -hmm. And the ones that fall underneath the COO, they, really wanted to take a look at a stronger look at and say look if they're actually saying or are about what they are saying that's something that they want to invest in something that's making a difference down the value chain so let's take off the marketing cap real quick for yep. the operational expected could you explain what that means to integrate purpose and collective leadership in from an operations perspective yeah, so it's a great question. Firstly, the purpose work that I'm talking about is not limited to marketing or CSR, corporate social responsibility. In fact, that could not be further from the truth. It's the foundational purpose of a company, why that company exists. So to your point, it applies throughout the value chain, which is where you get your materials, how you make them, how you get them to market, how you market them all the way through. So that's the fundamental presumption. The reason I'm sort of excited about what's going on is increasingly when we were doing We First work years ago, my company's work, we would be talking to the chief sustainability officer or the head of philanthropy. It was the do good leaders off to the side of the business. Then increasingly it became the CMO 
who was like, oh, wow, we've got to be more purposeful in our storytelling. And very quickly, the CEO, mm. the chief executive officer who runs the company, and it's really interesting right now as we're seeing more and more, it's the CFO and CFO, so the COO, so the chief financial officer who runs all the money side and the COO who's in charge of all the operations. Why are they doing it and what does that look like? They're doing it for several reasons. You are, are the, these days, all stakeholders from employees to investors to consumers are either looking at you and saying you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. You as a company, what you make, how you make it, and they want to buy from, invest in, or work for companies doing good. All the data is bearing this out. Which means if you're not looking at how you source your materials or the manufacturers who are your suppliers, tier one, tier two, tier three, all the way down through your supply chain, they're exposing you to a risk that your employees, your investors, or consumers will call you out and say, <clears throat> you're part of the problem, or you say you're part of the solution when really you're part of the problem. And just look at how dynamic this is now. You saw engine number one, an activist investor, take on ExxonMobil in the last couple of months and get three board seats and really force this leading energy company in the petrochemical world you know, to really re-engineer what it's doing, the oil and gas world. So there, you've got to mitigate the risk of that by re-engineering your supply chain. By the same token, You've got to look at who you hire, how you hire them, and how you treat them. So diversity and inclusion, JEDI, justice, equity, has become so important since the, the Black Lives Matter protests and the, the tragic murder of George Floyd and beyond. And so therefore, you've got to look at your onboarding practices, your hiring practices, how you pay people, how you recognize and reward people, and you need true um, diversity and inclusion, because diversity doesn't ordinary, automatically mean inclusion. You can, you know, populate your employee base with people from different backgrounds and minorities, people of color or multicultural um, communities, but are they really included in the process? Are they really put on equal footing with everybody else? So supply chain, um, culture and HR, then you've got the products you make and the products you innovate. And the truth is, all the products you make and innovate today are huge marketplace opportunities to solve for these problems that are out there. Look at dramatic example, Elon Musk. He's getting everybody off combustion engines and now he's got arguably the wealthiest man in the world or close to it on the strength of providing sustainable solutions. And then you've got all your CSR and impact work. So the point is this, if you want to mitigate risk, if you want to build your reputation, if you want a resilient and productive culture with employees, if you want to make products that are going to resonate with a growing number of conscious consumers, and if you want to be on the right side of history in terms of the role of business in solving for all these massive challenges, then you need to pull throughout your entire value chain the purpose of your organization, which is why it's so relevant now to the CFO and the COO. It's very interesting, and I'm just writing down a few notes here, Simon. Uh, risk mitigation has been mentioned a few times. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. If you are not doing what you say you're, you are doing, you are putting yourself at risk. If, you, if you're not making changes, sustainable solutions, yeah. you are at risk. But why are you at risk? You're at risk from social pressures. And why Absolutely. are you even more at risk? Well, you could be at risk from social pressures from influencers that have a large following that could influence a lot of people to deem your company or your brand as non-intentional or non-aligned. Mm -hmm. 
And so yeah. what I want to talk about is risk and the dangers also that what we're not talking about. Let's be very honest about yeah. what goes past that point of what you had just said. And yeah. when I think about what's happening in society and how it's changing, one can make an argument that social influencers are having more influence on businesses than the government is and the representatives of the government are at this point in time. Do you think that's dangerous? Do you think it's dangerous that business is succumbing to an influencer who has no concept of business but sees something and is quick to react and makes a post or a statement or a video and millions and millions and millions of people could potentially tarnish your brand? Do you see any danger in that? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, let's start with the premise, which is why do people work with influencers? Well, you can grow the exposure or awareness of your brand or product much more quickly, not by collecting individual eyeballs, but by collecting groups of eyeballs. Yeah. So these brands reach out to an influencer that's got a million followers, and one would think that their values aligned, and therefore, great. You know, we've got 20 influencers, we're reaching 20 million people, for example. But, you know, they are giving away some of their power, and there is some risk with that. And there's a couple, few risks. Firstly, a lot of the followers for these influencers are just bots or vanity metrics. They're not real. And why do I say that? Because it's been exposed to be true and you've seen brands like Unilever actually walk away from their influencer strategies because these metrics weren't honest, the platforms weren't keeping those metrics honest, and they just didn't want to be involved in something where they were paying for a value that they weren't getting. The second thing is, you know, influencers sometimes are getting increasingly desperate for exposure and they may do something sensationalist or they may bring their personal views to the table that can create a risk for the brand that they're supporting. Absolutely. And then thirdly, I think there's so many influencers out there now that it may, the, their value is diluted. You know, five, 10 years ago, being a top YouTuber commanded great fees and a lot of eyeballs. Now everyone seems to, seems to be doing it. So I think the strategy of collecting communities of eyeballs rather than eyeballs makes sense. But you have to be very intentional about the influencer you work with and hold their feet to the fire the same way they do you in terms of your alignment and values and, and staying true. And there's also a balance. You know, if you're an influencer and you start flogging yourself on every post endlessly, people get really weary of that because you effectively sell out and you're commoditizing your audience. So, so there's a risk there as well. I saw in 2020 when like the you know, George Floyd had happened and everyone came out and was talking about Black Lives Matter, we post the black square. And if you were not posting the black square, the quote was if, you know, uh, I forget what the quote was, but it's essentially if you did not post or say something, you were basically part of the problem. Right. Um, do you think that these social pressures, these voices, these influencers are also <laughs> silencing a lot of people. So for instance, yeah. uh, let's take, you know, defund the police movement that came on. Um, there are plenty of Democrats that don't believe in defunding the police. Yeah. Let's take the Black Lives Matter uh, protest. There are plenty of Republicans who believe in that Black Lives Matter, yet they were very polarizing. Yeah. So by joining a, a, a movement are you associating yourself with a political party? And do you also see any dangers of that when we, when, on this you know, theme of risk? Yeah, it's super hard for brands today, B2B, B2C, large or small, because the issues have become politicized. 
because the you know the, the responsibility of business has now extended beyond business itself out into social and cultural issues. So whether you like it or not, when a brand puts its hand up to stand for something, it's wading into the politics now built around that issue. Also, to your point, which is great, a lot of these issues are very, very complicated because, you know, what was the exact very. meaning of defund the police? Because when you boil everything down to these sound bites to capture people's attention, to have these media hits, to trigger reactions, to be clickbait, you dumb down the debates and you oversimplify and it becomes very, very dangerous. Um, so it, brands are fraught with danger now when they wade into to, to these issues. I think, you know, I, brands have to now make a stand on political and social issues above and beyond business issues because that's the expectation of consumers, of employees, and brands need to be increasingly accountable, transparent, and authentic in their commitment to those issues. This creates a higher bar for brands because not only do you have to worry about what business you're in, you have to worry about all of these social issues again and, and the complexity of them and how they're evolving over time. And this puts a much greater onus on CEOs, especially, or leadership, to be able to speak to that in an articulate way. And you've seen lots of people sort of backfire or oversimplify things and so on. We, in our work, help a lot of brands navigate these issues. And to your point about the black square and so on, often what it leads to is, is companies, brands are paralyzed. They don't know what to do or say when. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was Ryan Gellert, the CEO of Patagonia, came out the other day and said, in a Fast Company article said, you know, the real challenge for leadership of any company today is that you're going to be facing multiple crises at once. So do you speak to BLM and climate and, and the pandemic all at once? And then it's going to be the next thing and the next thing and voting rights and what's it going to be? So with all of that as context, I think all you can do, this is why it's so important to define your purpose, which is why you exist as a company, mm. is satisfy the table stakes, which is sustainability, ESG, DNI, Jedi, diversity and inclusion, and fair and living wage. That's a baseline for any company. And then you need to step up, stand up, show up specific to those issues that are relevant to your business. And let me give you an example. Harry's, the razor group, uh, subscription model for razors. They could have gone out and made PPE equipment like anybody else. But instead, during COVID, they looked at it and said, who's our audience? By and large, it's young men. What is their issue? depression, anxiety, a ridiculous rate of suicide, especially during COVID because they lost their jobs and prospects for their future. And so what do they need? They need mental health support. And so rather than making PPE equipment, they leaned into their core demographic in a way that was relevant to their brand and provided with crisis text line support for young men. So get those three right, fair and living wage, sustainability, and DNI, and then show up in relevant issues in ways that are authentic to your brand. I love, I like that answer. And I also like a few of the examples that you provide on the show earlier. Um, and I'm talking about past shows right now, like Ben and Jerry's, yeah. how they've adopted that movement. I thought that was a really interesting example that you played. What do I need to do right now as a business owner to survive in the future, to be future proof? And I'll give you a few examples while you're waiting on that. I think brands and companies of the future are adapting to help people live a new lifestyle that they want. 
we're an organization and we're going to do four days a week, not five. We're not going to make you work nine to five. We're going to be Airbnb so you can change your lifestyle, rent out homes, and have passive income on the side. We're going to be Uber where you can pay off your college debt and work anytime you want. The gig economy is slowly becoming the future of jobs because we were in a system that was not working for many people. Now they can make a little bit more money on the side and live in areas that they want. What do you see? What is so important? What is the number one thing companies need to pay attention to now that we've gone through this to make sure that their business model, their messaging and their operations are future-proof? Yeah, I think future-proofing is a key word. And I also said, thought what you said, which is making the system work for everyone. You know, this, this points back to leading with we, the idea that we work together to provide solutions that benefit everyone. Why? Because we are in trouble and we are facing issues that are going to affect everyone, rich or poor, blue or red, no one's exempt. So what should we do? I'm going to give a, maybe a surprising answer. I've chosen to be optimistic in the face of this very challenging future because I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we throw up our hands and say we're doomed, or then yeah, we will be doomed because no one's going to do anything. The only way that we're going to get there is if we actually work together. With that in mind, I think that there's a big gap in this whole idea of stakeholder capitalism that everyone's talking about right now at the World Economic Forum and so on and so on. People, it's very powerful to shift from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism, which really just means that we look at all stakeholders in our future and make sure that business capitalism serves everyone. The system works for everyone. But I think where, they, where it falls down is that People keep referring to everyone benefiting from capitalism, rewarding, getting the rewards of capitalism, but they don't recognize that for that to be possible, everyone else needs to assume the responsibilities of stakeholder capitalism. So it's not just the rewards, it's the responsibility. Pointing back to what I said before, which is we made this mess together. And every time only half of us try and fix it and the other half don't care, the whole thing falls apart mm. because you undo everybody else's work. So we've got to do it together. What does that mean? It means that we should all enjoy the rewards, but we should also all assume the responsibilities. So to, to answer your question, what do I think brands or companies need to do? They need to reframe their role through this lens of collaborative leadership where they're working with their suppliers, their employees, their customers, partners, competitors, and create opportunities that unlock the agency of every stakeholder to assume responsibility to make the future better. What does that look like? We are gonna make better for you, better for the planet products. We are gonna encourage you to eat more of a plant-based diet. We are going to improve our own supply chain, but make sure we get plastics and chemicals out of what we make so that you're not you know, unintentionally putting them into you know, the natural environment simply by buying our products. Everyone out there, cannot escape how much trouble we're in because it comes through our phone 10 times a day in every news story every single day. Heat waves in Northwest and whatever else it might be. So with all of that in mind, everyone is on point as to how their future, their personal future has been compromised and how the future of their kids and though they, they care about has been compromised. So I think the opportunity for companies is to co-create with their stakeholders ways to assume greater responsibility so that as an aggregate, we can all unlock the power of the same connective tissue that got us in trouble in the first place when everyone was doing everything wrong and so everything went to hell. 
to everyone doing everything right so that it's not only solving for that issue, but it has a knock-on effect to solving for other issues. Hmm. So I think that's the great opportunity. I think if we as companies sit there and go, sure, we're in trouble, but every one of these problems is a marketplace opportunity. And this is a wake-up call to improve our supply chain and how we treat our people and how we work with consumers. And we are going to make good-for-you products and we're going to show up in the world in a way where it's going to do good. And we're going to do it with competitors. We're going to do it industry-wide. And we're going to get there. And if this sounds like naive, Pollyanna, foolishness, let me just give you a few data points. The coalition of 300 CEOs who pressured the Biden administration to make more aggressive climate targets. The coalition of airlines, the EcoSkies coalition of airlines that came together and said business travelers can now offset their carbon footprint by paying extra. Um, Victoria's Secret doing a, you know, whiplash 180 turn to now being about women's empowerment instead of the objectification of women through the male gaze. You know, it just goes on and on and on, these examples now of brands showing up differently in the investor class. So I think I'm incredibly encouraged. It's happening further, faster as the issues become more acute. And I see that there's this massive opportunity for innovation and growth on the strength of solving for these issues. And I just want to make sure our audience is up to date because uh, we we tend to go off and talk really far because we, we know each other. We talk about this stuff all the time. For people listening to this for the first time, what we're really talking about is the, and, and please let me know if you agree with this, I would say the updating of capitalism. And so yeah. in 1980, we have Milton Friedman who says the social responsibility of business is to maximize profits. And if you are to speak any other, uh, otherwise, you are, I think the quote was, an unadulterated puppet of socialism, of the so in in the intellectual forces that are trying to influence socialism. But now we've come to this state with uh, the rise of social entrepreneurs, impact investors, and companies that are saying exactly what you just said. We need to co-create. We need to add value to the value chain in our inbound logistics, in our manufacturing, our outbound logistics, our sales and marketing, and our customer support. All throughout our value chain needs to flow and immerse and center this idea, that spiral around the purpose and core values. And I think the one thing we may not be talking about is this idea that we've all I guess, tacitly agreed upon that organizations that only work to maximize profitability are going to be the best companies in the future. I don't think that's true. If you were to tell Yvonne Chenard, if Yvonne Chenard in Patagonia were to start a company today and say, I'm going to spend loads of money on an organic cotton supply chain, I'm going to invest tons of money into an adult daycare center in my headquarters, and I'm going to cut off all my other suppliers. I'm going to make a wetsuit that is uh, that doesn't use virgin oil, and I'm going to give away the patent. If you were going to tell, if Vonsignar was going to tell an investor that today, they wouldn't invest in it. Yet, they're the most notable clothing company that is best for the world. Do you agree with that? Do you think that we are tacitly agreeing that businesses, the best businesses and the ones that invest, and we're going to invest tons of money, even though we might lose it, are the companies that are trying to maximize profitability? And do you think there's an argument to be said that 
Well, maybe the companies are going a different direction by, like you said, co-creation, stakeholder value are the ones of the future. I'm, I'm going to put an opinion out there that I want to be held accountable to. Um, I, you know, launched We First when I wrote a book called We First back in 2011. And the first chapter of that book was The Future of Profit is Purpose. Mm. And in 2011, people thought I was a, a, a lunatic. Never going to happen. Isn't it nice that naive people like you exist? And here we are 10 years later and there is um, the marketplace has changed for all the reasons we just said. There's something else that I said in that book, which I think is equally true and we're not there yet, which is the most iconic brands of the future will be those with the greatest social impact. And let me give you some pointers, mm. like proof points, because all of this sounds like we're drinking our own Kool-Aid and sure. we're just naive and foolish people. Tesla, you know, just look at how successful the company has been by solving for the impact of the combustion engine. Or as you say, Patagonia, you know, a privately held company, but just how I I iconic that, that brand is. And when you, you look at Unilever, the largest CPG in the world, where the vast majority of its growth is being driven by its purpose-led companies, so much so that it's actually divesting itself of non-purposeful brands like Magnum and, and other things, ice cream and so on. Why is this happening? It's not rocket science. None of this is hard. It's you had a bunch of people who encouraged each other to make profit for profit's sake and damn the consequences to the natural world, social systems, other people, whatever. And over several decades, that's got worse and we reached the point where it's no longer tenable, like things are breaking down. That's not rocket science. And nor is it rocket science for us to go, well, now we face this really compromised future where things are only going to get worse. It's not rocket science to go, well, those companies that really lead with how they're solving for these incredibly difficult, complex, pressing issues will be the ones that resonate the most. And that's and if let's let's put our financiers hat on again. Let's be really cynical. You know, you have Larry Fink, the CEO of the, the largest money uh, management firm in the world, BlackRock, almost nine trillion in assets, saying that there is a in this third annual letter, there's a fundamental restructuring of the capital markets coming. And this is a guy who's the bellwether for stock markets around the world, who's hugely responsible for what he says. And he said, everybody needs to have an ESG, a sustainability agenda, not because it's a do good, make the world better place thing, but because he can't in good conscience advise investors to put their money into companies that aren't set up to survive what's coming with the climate emergency. So just from a pure investor return point of view, it doesn't make sense that you have companies that are unaware and unprepared. You can't point to them and say, invest in that. So whether you look at it from a purely mercenary point of view or whether you look at it from a purely impact point of view, I believe the most iconic brands of the future will be those with the greatest social impact because they will recognize that every one of these challenges is a marketplace opportunity in disguise. And when they re-engineer their supply chain, when they treat their people differently, when they take different products to market and innovate you know, new ones, they will capture that marketplace opportunity. And just three examples, look at the rise of clean food, clean beauty, and clean apparel. Mm. Clean food, clean beauty, and clean apparel. Explosive, just explosive. The acronym you brought up, JEDI, what does that stand for again? Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Social justice, yeah. The reason I bring that up is 
you know, while we were in our homes and, and you know, we had a TV screen, I watched uh, Star Wars again. I hadn't seen Star Wars in a long time. And one of the things that, one of the quotes that Obi-Wan Kenobi brought Are we out, going there? We're going to Obi-Wan? So we're going there. We're going to Obi-Wan? We're, 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 okay. He said, um, Anakin, Jedis don't deal in absolutes. So from that perspective of what a Jedi actually means, how important is it for brands to not deal in absolutes, to, be, to stay open-minded? to not follow a bunch of the others, to be true to their brand. And we talk about purpose all the time. How does a business owner listening to this identify their core values to make sure that they are not dealing in absolutes? Yeah, it's a great question. There's two parts to that. So the first part is really what, what should dictate how you show up and behave in the world? You can't let the tail wag the dog. You can't let consumers tell you who you should be because you will constantly change like a windsock in a hurricane. Like they want this now or this demo wants here. We want to go into this market and they want that. Love it. Nor can you let your competitors tell you who to be because then you're just copying them and you're not differentiated and you're not going to stand out. Instead, it's just like being a human being and you're walking to a party and you know, you really got to, the more self-assured you are, the more clear you are about who you are, the more articulate you are to that end, the better people can get to know you and decide whether they want to associate themselves with you or not. If you try to be all things to all people, you are going to be absolutely lost, absolutely lost. And, you know, you'll spend all this money and time reaching out to the marketplace and people will say, well, you're like this, you're like that, you're, you're this over here and this over here, but you won't ever tell a simple, consistent and scalable story so people will really know who you are. So you'll really waste your resources. And like so many companies we speak to or work with, they'll say, we've been doing all this work and doing all this good stuff for two or three years and no one knows who we are. And it's never got anywhere. It's because you've been jumping around and doing all these different tactics and so on. And then to your second question, so the more self-assured you are, um, you know, the better you are, the better you are. And to your point about absolutes, you know, I was talking to a, a CEO group the other day and someone said something that I thought was really spot on, hmm. which is with anyone leading a business, whether you're in marketing, executive team, whatever, we've got to stop blaming ourselves for getting it wrong. And what do I mean? I beat myself up all the time because I'm not getting it right or this didn't work out or I didn't get this, whatever it might be. The marketplace is changing so dynamically as a function of technology, demographic shifts and all those normal timeless things. The marketplace was disrupted in a way that we couldn't even imagine by the pandemic. For the first time in human history, we are facing a, a crisis bigger than humanity itself in the sense that we've had other pandemics in the past and arguably the pandemics are of our own making and who's to say, and that's a whole wormhole. But whether it's for how we treat the planet or those who say it's from a lab, I have no idea and I'm, right. it's not something I want to touch. Sure. Um, but, you know, and if you look at the world wars, they're of our own making in a way. We are facing an existential crisis because the planet is in crisis with the climate emergency. And so all of that is to say that there is good reason that this state, this destabilized state, this flux that we're in, this feeling we constantly have with, we're getting this right, but this went wrong. And now this happened and that happened. All of these CEOs were like head nodding saying, 
oh my God, that's the new normal. And so to your point about not thinking in absolutes, I think we need to be self-assured as to who we are, but we're in the context of a marketplace that's in constant churn, and therefore the power of your purpose as to why you exist as a company is really the only rudder you have, that as the circumstances change in real time, how do you show up authentically and transparently in alignment with that purpose? And as sort of concerning as it is, all of us, including myself, have to accept the fact that this very uncomfortable, destabilized state where everything's changing and we're not getting this right and people are leaving, they want to work differently, and there's this health threat and now there's this climate thing, that is going to be the constant. And when I said that before in the past that there's this hockey stick of expectation on business where things are just going to get worse because of these challenges are going to get worse, this is one of the ways it's showing up. It's kind of like this death wobble on a skateboard. Do you remember when you were a kid and you're on a skateboard and you get that death wobble and you're like, holy crap, I'm going I'm to eat it. I'm going to eat it no matter what. We are feeling that wobble in our daily lives and as business leaders in our companies because of the conditions we've created or allowed to be created around us. So to answer your question, I think, no, we don't deal in absolutes, but we've got to be self-assured as a brand in the context of a very fluid and dynamic marketplace and a very challenged marketplace and so that we need to be agile. We need to be kind of this sort of jujitsu, kind of constantly moving and adapting and changing, not as the exception to the rule, but as the rule. And I think what that does is, is that establishes a sense of belief. And that's what's missing. We're missing belief nowadays. People don't believe in the companies. They don't believe in their processes because they're trying to please everybody, because they're trying to do other things that aren't themselves. Exactly what you said. And now there was a great example I read in the book the other day. It was a wife and a, or sorry, a, a woman and, a, and her child are walking city to city. They're carrying a bread basket and shoes and a donkey. And wow. they go to the first city and they get stoned and, and as in like they get thrown, <laughs> they get stoned, they get uh, stones thrown no, at them. Maybe it's legal there. Maybe, maybe, no maybe they're doing both. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But they get kicked out the city. And so they go to the next city. And so they said, oh, you know what? Before we go in, let's drop the, the bread basket. It's probably the bread basket they didn't like about it. Maybe they, they don't like bread. They went to that city and they got stones thrown at them again. And so they said, okay, well, before we go to this next city, maybe it was the shoes that we're wearing. Maybe they just didn't like our shoes. And they go into the next city and then they get, you know, throw stone items. And before they go to the next city, they look at their donkey and then they push their donkey off the bridge and the donkey falls and dies. And the moral of the story oh, is the moral of the story is if you go around trying to please everybody, you're gonna lose your ass. And so when you That's think awesome. if, if exactly so if you don't think about your core values and articulate those and ask people um what exemplifies our company and don't understand these things you will wobble what where you want to be and we were talking about surfing beforehand yeah. you want to be so close to the edge that you're about to fall but you've got that belief that you know you're going to take that yeah. way because you've set your line and you've done this before you want to be right at that point of danger that's where you have to ride the wave and so there's yeah. a sense of belief that's missing in this and the belief from your employees and so i think really articulating that you know you know wars are one with people if, if you are really trying to win this war on capitalism, you've got to inspire that sense of belief. And I think that's what leaders do. Yeah, I, I agree. Although I wouldn't call it a war on capitalism. I, I think we are so, all of us on this, really, we're so deeply invested in the power of capitalism when it's re-engineered to really transform our lives. And so we're reimagining it. And I there's a question in the chat from Julie that I want to speak to, which is, you know, um, 
she asked, if you could name the number one challenge that you think would be the biggest game changer for positive change, what would it be? And this points back to what you just shared, Kevin, which is, you know, we've got to kind of set our line and have that confidence and just go for it. I've been asking myself that question on the strength of all the work we do with lots of B2B and B2C companies. So we're really in the meat and potatoes of this stuff every single day. It's not theory. It's like, oh, crap, how do we solve for this? Um, I think that we cannot innovate or iterate or incrementally change our way to a brighter future. I think if the fundamental presumption is that we're going to just build on or tweak the way we've approached things in the last five decades, we should be very concerned. I think the number one thing we need to do is to change our mindset in the first place for how we see the role of business, for how we act within that and so on. And honestly, Julie, thank you for the question. That is absolutely why I wrote Lead With We, the new book, because I'm like, why is this not working? Why are we not getting there fast enough? Why do we have to worry every day about our children's future and things getting worse and read these horror stories in the press? And I think the reason is, is that we are looking at capitalism and the practice of business uniquely over the last five, maybe seven decades through the wrong lens. We're looking at it through the wrong end of the telescope. We are looking at it through the me first lens. And we need to look at it where we elevate the interests of the collective so that everyone can thrive. Why? Because when we've only been taking care of ourselves, the whole system on which everyone depends breaks down. And so I think that we are starting to see the beginnings of the coalition of stakeholders coming together, industry groups coming together, competitors coming together, you know, cross-sector coming together. And what is the theme that's emerging? If you, if you laid out a thousand examples on, on the wall, it's not rocket science. It's like we're in this together. We're either going to succeed together or fail alone, as the expression goes. Mm -hmm. and so my big passion is, could we create something like, you know, lead with we, where you go, I can apply this as a CEO. How do I make this decision through that lens? I can apply this as an HR officer. I can apply this as a, a product innovator. What's that filter that works across all departments and functions? And what's that filter that works in Johannesburg and Sydney and Berlin and Bangladesh and Delhi? What is that universal mindset shift, that language that allows all of us to go, oh, right, 1980s, greed is good, profit for profit's sake, you know, fiduciary duty to shareholders, whatever it was. What is that new equivalent that we need that we can apply day in and day out and that we look back on in five or 10 years and go, oh my God, this is self-evident. The same way today to be purposeful as a brand is almost self-evident when 10 years ago, it was not in any way, shape or form on the tip of the tongue of anybody. And now we're all like, oh, of course you need to look at this and McKinsey and PwC and everyone's talking about this and how could it be any other way? I wanna work with others in this choir of change to get to a point where we embrace the power of the collective to work together to solve these issues. And then when we do that, I think it will be a renaissance for capitalism mm. and it will unlock a legion of entrepreneurs that will enjoy extraordinary growth and wealth by solving for these issues. And we'll look back at the way we practice business and the consequences on our lives and others' lives especially and go, 
what the hell were we thinking? Mm. The same way younger generations like my two daughters, 18 and 21 year olds go, like, you want a medal for changing what you're doing? What the hell were you doing in the first place? Mm. So yeah. that's, that's the number one thing I think needs to change, which is the mindset, the perspective, the lens through which we look at capitalism and business. And then we can use those same dynamics and achieve extraordinary things in the next decade. We forget, right? We, we often forget that capitalism is, is an, it's amoral. It is an evolution of things. It's we often so many times over the years. We so often, many times. We yeah. often forget that civilization, humanity will surpass us for hundreds and hundreds of years too. This is primitive yeah. thinking that we are in right now. We will look back and say, what were we talking about? We're not living forever. Exactly. And it's so that's not, not okay. You know, so. what I find hopeful is, and I, and as much as I don't like it, we are seeing capitalism evolve faster than before and that's oh, yeah. i think through s social media i think social media is a counterbalance of socialism in capitalism and it's capitalism's baby and so it's a, it's out of a birth of an iphone which then results to a platform and mobile and sub people on on your phones and then you now have apps and then you, now you have platforms and now you have people talking on platforms and now you have people talking on platforms that are more influential than the people that created them Right. And That's true. But I just want to, I want to follow up one thing, which is, you know, capitalism and socialism are fungible terms. They change. They yes. evolve over time, as you yeah. said. Exactly. But they become these polarized, politicized labels. And yes. neither of them mean what they used to. And neither do they, and then neither shows up in the same way in different people's lives, depending on how they even look at life through the political lens, the social lens, where they live and so on. So it's, it's really hard to have um, substantive discussions around complex issue in this soundbite world. It's really, really hard. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It is. And, and that's why I'm, yeah, I'm kind of torn on that because it's like, okay, was this the right solution for it? But it doesn't matter. It's happened. It's here. We have to be in the moment, in the present, and think about how it's changing in the future. But where you do need, you do need that balance. Um, you do need socialism and capitalism, capitalism and socialism. Because yeah. to me, capitalism is like unequally bad and socialism is equally bad. And so like, where, where's the yin and the yang? Where's the chaos and the order in the middle? And where can we find this, this center ground, this center place collectively um, to you know, benefit the common good, the common person who's you know, just trying to get by and pay rent, which is exactly where we kind of started this episode. All right, and, and we started it with surfing as well. And you know what the other thing is? I would just say before we go and thank you for people that, you know, listening in today is like, you know, I found personally just connecting with the natural world again, which I really haven't done much of in the last year and getting in the water, which is for me, for some people, it's the mountains. It just reminds you about what's important and it puts everything in perspective. And if I was to give a really clumsy kind of point of view as to where do we all start with this really sort of heady, complex thing in terms of capitalism, socialism, it's instructive to go to the World Economic Forum and all the reports they put out each year. There's some really in-depth explanations about that calibration. So that's one resource there. But more broadly, get out into the natural world. Look at the extraordinary environment around it. Look at the gift we've been given. It'll restore us personally. <clears throat> it will allow us to connect with what we share with other human beings on the planet, which is that connection to each other in the natural world. And it allow us to kind of step away from the distortion that comes through looking at life through these little screen lenses and these zoom cameras and so on. 
And it'll just allow us to recognize what we have in common as opposed to what separates us. And I think that's a really, really foundational, fundamental starting point. And it's something that I've really been made mindful of in the last few de- days. And I just hope we all get out there and, and just connect to what nurtures us, you know? Well, Simon, I hope you continue uh, the serpent path, the serpent route, and just, you know, get back on that board. It's very yeah. difficult to get off sometimes. So, uh, so yeah. I appreciate you coming on back on the Keep It Real series. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Uh, and always, folks, keep it real. Next time. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with the one and only Simon Mainwaring. And before we go, I want to remind you all that the Impact Awards are still going on and end on August 31st. If you're a brand officer or CEO who wants to achieve revenue goals, increase customer traffic, and ultimately support your brand engagement, Go online, folks. Do yourself a favor. Go online to real-leaders.com slash impact-awards-application. Apply your company to be recognized in our publication and online. And who knows? Maybe in January, if your organization wins, you will receive tons and tons and tons of free internet traffic, eyeballs, and recognition from ultra-high-net-worth CEOs. So, again. The link is in the description. It's also real-leaders.com slash impact-awards-application. We hope to see you apply. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Reelers membership. If you want to get access to all of Reelers Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes, enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real.